This week on the fifth and final installment of Ghost Town, the Blackburn News Podcast takes a look at the historic Huron County Jail, a site with many stories and perhaps some ghosts as well. Here are your hosts, Craig Needles and Haley Chang. Our fifth and final part of the Ghost Series covers a story all too familiar to the paranormal reality, but is unique to what we've covered so far. We have a compelling history, a setting that has an appearance made in nightmares, and numerous tales of death and hardships that would make anyone think twice about footsteps they hear. I mean, three separate hangings, a guard killed in an escape attempt, and 67 more deaths, which were not as dramatic, but perhaps did inspire some ghosts. The haunting is just inconclusive, to say the least. It's the reality of ghost hunting, I guess. And I mean, everything about it is just so interesting. And Before we continue, maybe we should explain what we're going on about. For sure. Good idea. We covered the Huron Historic Jail this week, which, for those of you who weren't aware of it, actually has a really interesting history. It was a jail that was built in the 1800s that maybe has the oldest collection of inmates in the history of jails? I mean, it housed murderers, the homeless, a mother with a child out of wedlock, and served as an institute for the mentally ill and those with dementia. The range of people that were in and out of the penitentiary, sometimes at the same time, is enormous. It's a history that still drives interest with people visiting Goderich, and even if ghost sightings within the building's limits are unlikely, it has happened. To say it's not haunted wouldn't be fair. But to say that it is? Let's just get into the story. We'll let the audience decide. The Huron Jail um, was the first county building in the Huron District. Uh, So to get your own uh, district with your own political representation, you needed a jail and a courthouse. Originally, the Huron District also was uh, included the United Counties. So it was the jail for a huge area, which included Perth, um, Bruce, Huron, and little parts of what are now Lambton and Middlesex. That's Sinead Cox, the acting senior curator and ghost tour guide at the Huron County Museum and the historic jail. It was the first municipal building So we didn't have a hospital, we didn't have a poorhouse, we didn't have a um, asylum. So the jail sort of served all of those purposes. So it's um, a very unique uh, panopticon design where you have this central spiral staircase and the cell blocks jut out like spokes on a wheel. It was very much designed for uh, criminals and keeping people separate um, and under surveillance. Um, But in reality, some of the people that spent the most time there and some of the people that died there um, were uh, homeless people, elderly folks, people with terminal illnesses, people with dementia who didn't have anywhere else to go. The jail had four different cell blocks, which were designed to keep people separate by the severity of their crimes. Thank goodness, because now we don't have someone's grandma trying to take down the top dog of the prison yard. You could have like a mother in with a baby just in jail for being an unwed mother and someone in for horse theft, someone in for attempted murder, someone in jail for vagrancy, essentially homelessness. And they could all be in at the same time, but have limited contact. So we had a teenage mother in the jail um, who had a baby um, and that was her whole reason for being in jail. So that would happen sometimes. The lower tier municipalities would commit 
uh, unwed mothers because we didn't have what was called a lying-in hospital in Huron County. Remember, this was the only government building, and so everyone that was stuck in this building together had no choice but to coexist and work together. It's important to emphasize that the staff was really small, like there was only the jailer, the matron, the turnkey in the early years, and then the jail surgeon on call. So there was a lot of like intimacy between in those early years between the prisoners and the jail staff because they literally like lived alongside each other and scrubbed the floors alongside each other and worked alongside each other and so it's you don't really see that kind of violence towards the staff until the 20th century. I wonder how much staff members got paid to scrub the floors alongside convicted murderers. I suspect it wasn't enough. I mean, it's not like the inmates escaped justice, though. Canada still had the death penalty back then. We also had three hangings, famously. So we had the last public hanging, depending on how you define public and how you define Canada. The last public hanging in Canada um, was Nicholas Milady um, in 1869. The first two hangings we had were public. They actually weren't inside the walls of the jail at all, because that would have been a security risk. So in those days, they actually had the hanging outside of the wall, on the other side of the wall, and uh, so that people could come and view the hangings. And uh, they had huge turnout. And people came from far and wide to see a hanging, and uh, like souvenirs and things were available. Um, and then our last hanging was inside the wall, and we have uh, in our collection we do have a piece of the rope that was used in the hanging of Edward Jardine for the murder of Lizzie Anderson. And people would go see hangings, like a 19th century version of going to a concert or a hockey game. Honestly, if that was the way to pass the time back in the day, I'd probably be there. I just can't believe that they sold pieces of the rope as a souvenir. What else do they sell? Mugs, t-shirts? While the hangings do take up a lot of the attention, there were many other deaths that took place in the jail. So in the winter, the building got extremely cold. So cold that in the 1890s when they installed indoor plumbing for the first time, the pipes were constantly freezing. It was a constant problem. Um, and we actually had a woman who passed away um, who was deemed in the terminology of the time as a lunatic. She wouldn't keep her blankets on her. She kept throwing them off. And they didn't have at that time padded cells or restraints. And so the staff was, ha- was at a loss of, of what to do. Um, and she actually would throw them off of the night. And one morning, the matron came in in the morning to check on her, and she had passed away. Every cell block would have had probably at least one person pass away in there. The house has had people pass away in there. So if there is an energy that is left by that, or if there are spirits, I guess you would see them everywhere. So um, if you're keeping track, like that's, 70 plus potential (laughs) ghosts. This place could have an overpopulation of ghosts. The sad reality is that in the 1800s, early deaths were not all that uncommon. So it makes sense the jail could be a very active paranormal site. There's one gentleman I always on my ghost tours was saying, if there's a ghost, I hope it's him. His name was um, Robert. And he, um, over 20 years off and on, was one of like the quote unquote winter residents of the jail. So he was constantly being recommitted, recommitted over 20 times he was recommitted. Um, and the House of Refuge was built. And one year, um, so he was before the local police magistrate and they were going to send him to the House of Refuge. And he was like, you know what? I like the staff at the jail 
better. Can I go to the jail? And they were like, okay. And he, he ended up uh, another person to pass away at the jail. And so since he was rather fond of the staff and uh, uh, may, I hope maybe that if there's a ghost there, then it's him. Kind of ruins the mental image of a scary haunted jail I had. Would not have thought that it would be nice enough to want to go there instead of an actual house of refuge. Speaks to the uh, dead occasion of the staff. The first year, I believe, I was giving ghost tours. Um, we were having construction. We were adding um, a fire escape to the building, which it had never had before. And so that central staircase, um, that's sort of the center of the building, it was actually chained off and you couldn't go up the stairs. And there was uh, a barrier said, that said, like, please do not go on the stairs. And uh, so I was sort of uh, milling about, answering questions, and someone came to me and say, there's someone on the stairs. And I was like, oh, great. I have to, like, put on my teacher voice or something and be like, please, please don't go on the stairs. You know, there's construction happening. Uh, and they were like, no, no, there's a spirit on the stairs. And I was like, oh, oh, well, that's fine. That's okay. It's not uh, going to violate any safety rules. And I, I've had two people see someone on the stairs. And in one time, they were specific enough that they said it was a woman in, like, a pale pink dress coming down the stairs. So we could have another case of full-bodied apparition. It's too bad we don't know who this lady in pink is. Are there any other stories with identifiable spirits? The only ghost that sort of name is that we did have um, a staff member who... who uh, uh, tragically um, received life-ending and injuries during an attempted escape in 1941. So his name was uh, Kierwood Kip White. He was the turnkey. Um, so he was routinely putting the locking the prisoners in their cells at night, which is part of the turnkey's job. And they actually had to go into the cell block with the prisoners to do that. Um, and so Mr. White was doing that, and a young uh, teenage inmate actually had sort of hidden a, a hammer on his like person from uh, work duty and so he hit him on his on the head and tried to escape and actually uh, Mr. White and the jailer were able to overpower him and he didn't actually escape but he had uh, he'd received a serious head injury he passed away from those injuries and that was the only death of a staff person um, and so a really common sort of paranormal experience that staff have told me they've had is hearing keys steps above them like if you're on the first floor hearing steps above in the cell block above and jangling keys um, when there's no one else in the building and so people attribute that and say that's kip's ghost this cell block the cell block upstairs are so cell block four and cell block three so one of them is the women's cell block and one of them is the cell block by the turnkey's office so those two cell blocks the upper cell block um, I've heard a few cases of staff being downstairs below those cell blocks and hearing footsteps above them and of, again, jangling keys is a common thing. Footsteps and jangling keys being the most common. And it was one of the upper floor cell blocks where um, a staff member felt like she was actually physically pushed out of a cell into the, into the hallway. Hearing footsteps and the sound of jangling keys is scary enough, but I can't imagine being physically touched by a ghost. So she didn't just get touched, she was pushed. I'd be horrified. And that's maybe why they called in the paranormal investigators to look into these claims and to possibly develop them. Who are you gonna call? 
Kevin. Well, my name is Kevin Davidson. Uh, I'm one member of Capture Paranormal. We initially start with uh, kind of uh, base reads with our with our equipment. We use very basic equipment. If you've watched the Ghost Hunters, the Ghost Adventures, any paranormal show, we have the K2 meter, which is just an EMF reader. Very, very sensitive. It picks up anything in the air, be it cell phone, Wi-Fi, uh, radio towers, uh, power lines, underground wires. It's really good for more debunking uh, claims. Um, and we have the Mel meter, which is another EMF meter, but it's more difficult to set off. And it also does ambient temperature in the air. Um, so we do base reads, kind of walk through the building with, with the meters in the hand, just take notes if anything fluctuates or changes. Well, we were there, oh, I would say we were there three or four hours. We concluded, like, just for one night, like when you're there once, like you can go one night and have nothing happen. You can go the next night and crazy things will happen. But that night we were there, um, we concluded that there's no activity there at all. Um, we tried everything that we could. We tried uh, spirit box sessions. We tried, we tried EVPs. We tried to, even a little provoking. We don't usually do that, but we were trying to do something to get something to happen. And it was just, it was just quiet as a church. It was just, it was very, very quiet. It's, it's, it's the consistency every time you go. Like if we were able to go back to the uh, Huron County uh, Jail, maybe something would happen. It would be just, it's all a matter of researching and continuously going back. But you have to have that relationship with the owners of the buildings that will let you come back in. Yeah. Uh, that, that's how I would label something active or, or haunted. That's a lot of ghost tech to not find anything. Well, there's a lot of factors that play into it. Like Kevin said, you might have to go several times. Ghosts just don't follow your schedule. Um, a lot of times nothing will happen if you have a member or two that don't really want to be there. They don't want to do. And the, the mood kind of throws everybody off and you just kind of just kind of want to leave. Uh, everybody has to be on the same level of excitement and positive. And that's what we found with uh, situations like that. So. Uh, it's all a frame of mind. If you go in not wanting to do it, then you're not going to have a good night. Like I've, I tend to just kind of keep an open mind and just go and whatever happens, happens. So we have consistency and mood. Even weather can be a factor in a paranormal investigation. Thunderstorms, we've done investigations uh, during a thunderstorm, a lot of electricity in the air. Um, that seems to ramp it up. His theory is that spirits or uh, energies feed off of electrical uh, currents. So how do you know if it's haunted then if there are so many different variables at play? Well, you bring in a professional vibe checker. I did contact the medium uh, that I know very well. And I, I kind of, I gave him my feel on the building and, and he's been there, like just toured the outside of the building. And he, if, if you believe in the mediumship and you believe what, uh, what he tells me is that it's not actually haunted inside, it's outside that the grounds probably have more activity or you would get more results, say EVPs or um, maybe not personal experience, but you probably get more um, be the EVPs on the outside of the building. Because of the area with like the War of 1812 and everything that's happened in, in southwestern Ontario seems to be kind of the going trend with buildings located on grounds. He said the grounds are tend to have more 
activity or more results on the outside than the actual inside of the buildings. So, any takeaways? The ghosts seem to have ghosted the paranormal team, or perhaps they were never even there to begin with. Honestly, pretty good restraint by us leaving the term ghosted to the final episode. But you've got to think that the historic Huron County Jail is the standard for hauntings, occurrences when you least expect it, and deathly silence when you go looking for it. Hauntings aren't always going to be consistent. I'd say that'd be fair to assume. Honestly, hauntings don't even have to happen at all, as long as the stories stay active. They're the most interesting parts. There's nothing like an old jail, oozing with the dramatic history, only then to be rumored as spirit-laden in every inch of the building. Even if ghosts aren't real, the paranormal can be fascinating. And if they are real, let's just hope they're nice. Friends that we didn't know existed. This concludes our fifth and final episode of Ghost Town. Thank you for listening.